Chapter 15 of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter 15 Winter Tales of Tanana. Tanana claims to be the hub of Alaska. It is a little town lying on the right bank of the Yukon, just about halfway between the Pacific and the Arctic Oceans, and halfway down the Yukon on its course from the Canadian line at Eagle. I have come 800 miles down the river from Canada on my way to this point, and I have 800 miles more to go before I can get the little steamer that will take me over Bering Sea to Nome. Just opposite where my boat is anchored is the mouth of the Tanana River, a wide sluggish stream having a course of something like 600 miles from the Wrangell Mountains to where it flows into the Yukon. It will take me two days to go up it to Fairbanks. There is no doubt that Tanana can offer room for all the population she may have in the future. The corporate limits at present are large enough to give an acre to every man, woman, and child of the population of less than 300 and leave some to spare. The log and frame buildings of the town are strung out along the waterfront for more than a mile. At the lower end of it begins the army post of Fort Gibbon, which extends three miles farther and which has a government reservation of 60 square miles. The people of Tanana are enthusiastic Alaskans. They have a live chamber of commerce, a camp of the Arctic Brotherhood, and a lodge of the loyal order of the Moose. Talk to them about their village and they will make you think it is a paradise as beautiful as the Vale of Kashmir and as salubrious as Los Angeles. I asked Judge Den, the United States Commissioner, who has been here a number of years, what he thought of the climate. He replied, I like it, and I keep healthy and happy summer and winter. Our summers, which last from May until the middle of September, are more delightful than those anywhere in the States. The thermometer ranges from 45 to 90 degrees above zero, and for most of the time there is scarcely an hour that you cannot read within doors without artificial light. From June 15th to the 10th of July, there is no real darkness, even at midnight. How about your winters, I asked. The man who went away from here and said that we have nine months of hard winter, and after that three months of bad slaying, is a liar. Our winter starts in about October 1st, when the thermometer drops to 15 degrees above zero. At that time... The ground freezes and remains solid all winter. The frost goes down to the bed of glacial ice that lies under a great part of Alaska. And, as far as we know, we live on a solid ice block for seven months of the year. The glacial ice does not melt in summer. The frost gets only through the moss and muck, which is ten inches or more deep. And where you pull up the muck, you will find the ground below frozen solid. If you clear off the moss and the muck, it will thaw down to eight or ten feet, but in the winter such ground seems to freeze from the top and the bottom both, until it is all hard as rock. The frost begins to go out of the ground about May 1st when the hot sun thaws the ice. It is then that summer begins. But your winter weather must be terribly cold. Not so bad, not so bad, said Judge Den. The weather keeps growing colder and colder from October on, until it gets down to 15 degrees below zero. It holds that average throughout the winter, although it now and then falls to 40 and even 60 degrees below. I have seen it down to 73 below. Zero is warm winter weather, 
and we do not consider fifteen degrees below that point uncomfortable at such times we wear our ordinary winter clothing and take off our top coats if we are at hard manual labor i came here from canton ohio fifteen degrees below zero on the yukon does not seem as cold as fifteen above in ohio our air is dry and we do not feel the cold besides continued the judge our houses keep out the cold they are made of logs chinked with arctic moss the warmest building i have is my log chicken house which is lined and sealed with a framework the space between being filled with shavings i keep an airtight stove going in it and my hens lay all winter i went out with the judge to see his chickens he has one hundred and fifty mostly rhode island reds and plymouth rocks he sells his purebred fowls at five dollars apiece and he gets a dollar and a half a dozen for eggs in summer and two dollars and a half in winter speaking of chickens i have been greatly interested in how they are handled in these cold regions of the far north we brought eight hundred brooded fowls on our ship down the yukon they had come from seattle and were consigned to a man in fairbanks they are still on the boat and will go up the tanana river tomorrow at dawson i met chicken billy who at one time had nine hundred chickens and who has sold eggs in the winter for as much as five dollars a dozen the chickens imported from the states will not lay unless there is the same proportion of light and darkness in their days as they were used to at home i heard of a man at circle who imported a lot of fowls from the states with the idea of starting a chicken farm after a week or so they grew droopy they lost flesh and he got no eggs whatever he was then told the chickens were suffering from lack of sleep it was midsummer when the light is bright throughout the twenty-four hours the chickens had no sunset to mark their bedtime and they kept on scratching gravel all night the man decided to put them in darkened coops at eight p m and keep them there until morning the hens at once regained their old vigor and began to drop ranch eggs which sold at top prices i am told also that the coops must be lighted during the long days of the winter in order to make the hens lay in the past few years there has been a craze in alaska in favor of the helpful hen most of the residents have been keeping chickens and raising their own eggs at first many kept them throughout the summer and sold them as cold weather came on to save the expense of warming and lighting the coops during the long winter nights they would import a second flock for the following summer today it is the custom to keep your chickens in summer and put them out to board in winter in several of the largest towns there are a number of chicken boarding houses where fowls are cared for in well-warmed well-lighted coops at a regular rate the eggs laid during the winter go to the landlord as soon as the warm weather comes on the owner takes back his chickens and is thus able to raise broilers and pullets and at the same time have plenty of eggs all winter the whole country is a cold storage plant so that it is easy to keep meat each householder having decided how many chickens she will put out to board kills the rest she cleans and dresses them and hangs them out of doors or in an unheated building they freeze solid the first night and can then be laid away in a cold place and used as needed a teacher told me how they manage to have fresh meat all winter long said he we bring our beef and mutton in on the hoof before navigation closes about the middle of october when we are sure of a steady cold until spring we kill and dress them and hang them up out of doors 
We then lay them away and thaw them out as the market demands. We freeze caribou and moose the same way. Last year, one of the butchers froze a caribou with the skin and horns on, just as it looked when alive. He stood the carcass out in front of his shop and used it for a sign. Betting on the ice in the river is a regular sport in this part of the world, and many are the speculations on when it will form, how deep it will freeze, and when it will go out in the spring. One of the river captains tells me he has measured the ice of the Yukon and found it at times five feet thick. In the ordinary season, the ice on the main part of the stream is only two and one-half or three feet deep. The ice forms the great highway of travel in winter weather. I asked this captain to tell me more about the ice on the Yukon. He said, Navigation opens at Dawson between the 6th and 16th of May, and it usually closes about the 25th of October. Long before the center of the river is frozen, there is a continuous strip of ice along the shores, and cakes of it float in the channel. As the cold weather continues, the ice extends farther and farther out until the channel grows so narrow that the steamers cannot make their way through. The floating cakes increase in number and pile up until at last they make gorges at the narrow places and form solid ice there. As winter settles down into a steady cold, the whole river is frozen from bank to bank so solidly that a train of cars could be run over it. The most interesting time on the Yukon, continued the captain, is when the ice breaks up in the spring. That on the upper part of the river breaks first and pushes its way down the stream, breaking the other ice as it goes. The boats start in behind the ice and move along as far as they can, and sometimes small boats start in the ice. The water never freezes again after it once melts, for we then have the long days and the sunshiny nights of the summer. I asked the captain to tell me about the betting on the ice break. That is most exciting, was his reply. All along the Yukon, the people bet when the great ice break will occur. They organize pools at Dawson and Fairbanks, where large sums are lost and won at the whim of Jack Frost. At Dawson, they cut a hole in the ice in the middle of the Yukon and erect a pole about four inches thick and 20 feet high. This freezes solid. They then fasten one end of a wire cable to the top of the pole and the other end to an electric stop clock on the shore set to standard time. The moment the ice moves the pole, the clock stops, and that moment marks the record of the beginning of the ice break and decides all bets. As soon as the clock stops, a steam whistle is blown and everyone knows the hour and the minute of the running. The usual date is about May 10th, the time when corn is planted in the middle states. Generally, the betting pool at Dawson has about 60 subscribers, the captain went on, and the total amount may be as much as $6,000. After a pool has been formed, 60 slips of paper bearing the numbers from 1 to 60 are put in a hat. Each number represents a minute of the hour, and the man who gets the minute shown by the stop clock as the flood reaches Dawson is given the purse. Bets are also made on the day of the month and week and upon the hour of the day at which the whistle will blow. One year, the engineer on the steamship Sarah invested $1 in a $500 pool and won it all. That was a day, hour, and minute pool. He guessed the right time to a minute. There are also many individual bets. The crowds gather on the banks of the river as the ice shows signs of breaking and watch the pole. 
When the whistle blows, the city goes mad. The same betting goes on at Fairbanks. The time there is the exact minute the ice tears away the bridge across the Chena River in the heart of the town. It does that every spring, breaking the posts as though they were matches. I find there is a difference of opinion as to Alaska winners. All are not as enthusiastic about the delights of the cold and darkness as those I have quoted. I tell you the winters are awful, said one of the women I met here. These people say they enjoy life when the thermometer is 20 or 30 degrees below zero and that that is not cold. I tell you it is cold, although the still air does not make it so bitter. When it is more than 20 below, we women stay in the house and so do the men as much as they can. We work by artificial light for most of the day and when spring comes, everyone is peaked and deathlike. With the coming of the long days, our color returns, and in summer we are as healthy and rosy as can be. But the long, dark days rack your nerves almost to breaking. You get tired of yourself and your friends and want something new in the way of amusement. You sleep as long as you can and pay but little attention to hours. All parties are held late, and they often last far into the night. And then the trouble of entertaining. Everyone has the same supplies and the same canned stuffs to select from. You go to your pantry and look at the shelves in despair. It is hard to know what to serve. When people go out into temperatures of 60 or 70 below, they avoid violent exercise. I am told that a quick deep breath of the freezing air makes the lungs feel as if they had taken in burning steel. Horses are seldom allowed to go out of their warmed stables when the thermometer is around 50 below, as the icy air kills them by burning out their lungs, as they say up here. Another Alaskan talking to me about funerals said, It is difficult to bury your dead in a land where the prehistoric ice lies only two feet under the moss and where you have to build fires to thaw the ice-frozen gravel beneath. In winter, you sometimes have to chop the graves out of the ice. There is no need of brick walls or cement. The coffin is laid in its ice tomb, the earth shoveled back, and soon all is frozen solid again. The dead buried in the winter remain frozen for an indefinite period, and when taken up years later look just as in life. The ice has turned them, as it were, to statues of marble. In the long dark months, the only contact with the outside is the mail brought over hundreds of frozen miles by dog team. It takes little imagination to realize what it means to the interior towns to have a poor mail service, and we can readily sympathize with the complaints and pleas for delivery of letters, papers, and magazines that bombard the government. The people complain that a large part of their newspapers and magazines, which should arrive during the winter, are held over until spring when they are delivered in bulk. For instance, one postmaster received in June 600 sacks of such mail, much of which was dated as far back as September, October, and November of the previous year. Think of getting all the copies of your pet newspaper published this winter in one big package in the coming May. Moreover, the people of Alaska say that the long winter is their time for reading, and they want their newspapers and magazines delivered as they come out. They especially resent the fact that in Dawson, situated far inland, the Canadians get all their mail regularly in spite of transportation difficulties as great as those to be overcome in reaching Alaska towns. End of chapter 15